started our year with um, a renewed determination to live our lives uh, full of purity and devotion and passion in relation to Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. And we began with an examination of 1 John chapter 3, which we will begin with again today. 1 John chapter 3, starting with verse 1, reading through verse 3. See what marvelous love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called God's children, and that is what we are. For this reason, the world does not recognize us because it has not known him. Dear friends, we are now God's children, but what we are to be in the future has not yet been fully revealed. We know that when Christ reappears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And every man who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself so as to be as pure as he is. Whoever maintains or keeps their this hope fixed upon him, being able to finally get to know him for who he really is, to know him completely. The result is purification. We find ourselves purifying ourselves even as he is pure. Now, since we have discovered the overwhelming focus the scripture places on our joyful anticipation of his return, uh, we, of course, you know, we, of course, knew about his, you know, his return for, you know, for the church, which is often uh, referred to as the rapture. But as a church, and I don't think we're alone in this, we've been far less... uh, caught up in discussing it, talking about it, than the early church was by far. We've decided to change that dramatically, right? If our forefathers in the faith found it so imperative that, like I told you, out of 260 chapter divisions in the New Testament, his return is mentioned over 300 times, it's got to be a big issue. And, of course, we just read one of the probably the premier verses that points out how important it really is. I really believe this is a big key uh, of why the body of Christ is not doing well. Uh, not not in, in, now in, like I say, in areas where there's persecution, they're doing very well, uh, as sad as that is. Under areas of persecution, the people who, who come to the Lord are dedicated to him by very nature, the fact that they have to be, or they would have never come to him in the first place, because to come to him is to invite harsh persecution. So they, we really don't have a problem in those parts of the world, but in other parts like ours, there's such a casual approach and a cavalier approach to salvation that is wholly unfitting, and it doesn't fit in with the New Testament, and there's many, 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 many severe warnings in the scriptures about people who maintain a light-hearted, cavalier approach to their Christianity. Very strong warnings. Super strong warnings. And, uh, and, and I really believe that that would be fixed purely on the fact if we would just maintain a joyful anticipation and expectation of his return. Looking forward to finally seeing the one that we claim that we love with all of our heart. Desiring it to the point where sometimes your heart literally aches to see him. 
A child of God that lives in that status, you're not going to have a problem with them dabbling around in sin and taking their and allowing stupid, really silly things in their life to completely derail them. It's not going to happen. They're just so focused on him. They're so in love with him that it just really doesn't matter. This other stuff just falls right off of them. It's not a big deal, right? You know what I mean? And, and I don't think that that's what we see by and large in the body of Christ. I don't think it is. And I think that this is one of the big reasons right here. And so we've determined that's not going to be us. We're not going to be this way. Uh, now go ahead and, if you will, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans 8. So keep your finger in both places. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans 8. We'll, beginning read, we'll begin reading um, this, uh, um, or we began reading this a few weeks ago when uh, the Lord brought that video to us. Uh, which we played, and then last week I uh, I felt impressed to back up a little bit before continuing our teaching on this chapter, but this week we're going to press forward. Last week we established how each arrival of Jesus Christ, each arrival, which we've only had one so far, but each arrival of Jesus Christ coincides, corresponds with an entire church age and experience. Uh, his first coming, which was at his birth, we had uh, we read a, a great number of passages last week showing that that first arrival was, was one that was associated with suffering and death. We read a lot of scriptures about that. Then we went through the New Testament examining how this was not only going to be the experience of the first age of the church, which is the age we're in, because remember the church didn't exist before Jesus died and rose again. He was the beginning of the church, right? The founder of the church, the body of Christ. So this first church age, suffering and death were going to be the primary um, uh, thing that was going on inside this first age. And we read a lot of scriptures about that. This, is, this age is what we often call the age of grace. And if there's any age that we're going to need it more than any other, it's this one. When we have opposition, when we have difficulty, when we're walking in hostile territory, you realize this is the only age of the church, you and I are going to have bodies that fight us and a world that's got a, a, an edge on us that challenges our allegiance to Christ. After this age is over with, it will never be that way again. We get our glorified body, and even though we will return to rule and reign with him, our bodies are not going to be the slightest bit interested in the ways of this world. Our hearts will not be divided. Our hearts will be united to fear his name and represent his kingdom and glorify him with all that we are. Amen? Thank you, God. What a wonder. But, but also, there's, a, there's, a, there's another good way to look at this. During this age of grace, that's what I was saying, because during this age right now, we need his influence. Then we're going to be so drenched in it, we're, going to, we're not going to be, sense a need because you won't have time to develop a need because you're going to constantly be influenced by him. Even as we are now, only we, the flesh serves as a veil and it hides and obscures our view of him. Paul himself says we're looking through a, a glass darkly, but then face to face, amen? So during this time, which Paul called this present distress, we run into a lot of things we're never going to run into again. And so we need this to be exactly what it is, the age of grace, the age of God's copious amount of pouring out grace. And if sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Thank you, God, amen? We need that. And so we have it. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this 
you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Right? I'll read that again. For to you, uh, for, for to this, you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Of what? Of suffering, right? That you should follow in his footsteps. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 says, Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love other believers and be compassionate and humble towards one another, not paying back evil for evil and insult for insult. That kind of garbage should end within a year after being born again. That is babyhood stuff. That is childish. It has to stop. It has to stop. Is anybody hearing me? Yes. That kind of stuff's got to stop. That a child of God, that should be like that should be some of the first things that just falls right off as a, as a baby. A baby in Christ. These aren't mature things he's expecting out of them. He says, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. So, but on the contrary, <clears throat> giving a blessing, since you were called to this so that you can inherit a blessing. So in the middle of receiving persecution and suffering, your reaction is blessing. Amen? <clears throat> you know, the, it, it, the, <clears throat> the piñata can't spill out what's not in it. Right? And you poke at that thing long enough, what's in is going to come out. For the child of God, what's in us ought to be blessing, ought to be love ought to be compassion, ought to be sympathy, ought to be understanding. Amen? I don't matter how much you poke at it, that's all that's in you. That's all that's going to come out of you. Amen? We know where we are when the screws are tightened down. We know exactly where our maturity level is. Amen? Then we looked at the return of the Lord for his church, his bride, which is, you know, the second appearing. Now, I have to be careful with that because the return of the Lord for his bride, technically speaking, and when I say technically, I mean because, because of the jargon that the body of Christ has developed in our age, the term second coming is often referred, referring to when he comes to rule and reign physically on the earth. So I don't want to use that in reference to his coming for his bride, even though technically that is the second one. Are you following me? You see how the language can get all kinds of muddy. And if, if, I, if I habitually use the word second coming to refer to the rapture, you might get into a part of a, a Bible study or read in a commentary and they start talking about the second coming and they're talking about him ruling and reigning at the end of the age. And you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought the second one was when he's coming back at the rapture. See why I, So that's why I'm clarifying it. I'm just saying his second appearing, just to make it, you know, to sidestep that issue. This second appearing of Christ when he comes to get his bride is associated with glory. Glory always, 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 always follows suffering. Always follows suffering. Jesus asked the Father during his, um, his hour of temptation and trial in Gethsemane to allow all of us who know, love, and trust him to be with him where he was going in heaven, that we might behold his glory which he had together with the Father from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. He also told his disciples that we were destined to share in that exact same glory, right? 
So Jesus' return for his church will be in glory, and we, as his bride, will be glorified together with him on that day. Now, I'm going to just read two verses for that, and then, or actually a few verses, and then we're going to start heading prior to Romans 8, where I had you put your finger, okay? The first one I'm going to read to you is in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13. While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's it talking about? His return, right? And what does it associate with his return? Glory, right? While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God. And we just read that in 1 John. Right now we are children of God. Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Romans 8, the spirit himself bears witness, testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we might be glorified together with him. Suffering goes before glory, but how are we glorified? Together with him. Jesus suffered alone. We don't. We suffer with him. Jesus was glorified before the Father alone. We are glorified together with him. Everything's always together with him, together with him, together with him. Amen. Jesus is the only one that has ever had to do any of this on his own, so to speak, right? And even then, he wasn't fully alone because the Father was with him until he had to turn his back on him at the cross. But even then, the Spirit was with him, right? But nonetheless, as far as a whole family, Jesus had to do these things by himself on his own. But you and I are never alone. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. The context is talking about elders and shepherds, stuff like that, but I want you to get the context. He says here, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah, and also our participant in the glory. We participate in the glory. And the last one I want to read you about that, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled faces are reflecting the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The work of the Spirit of God inside of us is a work of glorification. He's bringing us to the degree that we see Christ, we become glorified. But on the day that we see him as he really is and are united with him, we will literally, instantly be completely glorified. The process will be complete. Right now, it's a day-by-day process. A little here, a little there. Glory upon glory. But on that day, the glorification will be instantaneous and complete. Amen? Now, it will be on that day that we receive the fullness of our salvation, which includes the redemption of our bodies. That's why we're looking at Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15 today. Because, again, remember, we're paying attention to the, we're putting our great hope and our expectation in the soon return of the Lord. Amen? And it's an expectation that's rooted in a person, not an event, Right? We've seen that over and over again. We paid attention to the fact that 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 their hope was in him. Whoever maintains their hope in 
him, not in an event, but in the person of Jesus. Amen. But uh, but along with the time that we meet him, a lot happens. And one of the things that we have longed for since we got born again, even if we didn't have words for it, and if we didn't know how to capture it in phrases, we have longed for the redemption of our bodies. We've longed for it. We Christians might remain baby Christians and uneducated Christians for the great majority of their Christian life and not know that it's the body that's fighting them. They probably think it's just their mind or they think it's this or they think it's a lot. But the truth of the matter, it's, it's because you've got a body that still has death in it, right? That's what the Bible is very clear about that. That's what's influencing your soul. If you didn't have a carnal body, your soul would be right on board with the program of glorification. It fights you because you've got a body that still has sin and death in it. All right? And so Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. So let's go ahead and turn there because that's why I want us to, we're focusing on this because the glorification or the full redemption of our body happens at the same moment of the rapture. And so it's important that we know about it. It's obviously important because chapters are devoted to it in the New Testament. So we're spending time with that today. So in Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Therefore, there is no condemnation, or no condemnation now exists, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. But now I know that in some Bibles, especially New King James, King James, it'll say, it'll add something into that. That is not in most of the manuscripts, and it doesn't belong there. The statement is just, there is, the, uh, there, I'm sorry, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life, the Spirit's law, it's a law. Do you have the Spirit of God within you? You do, yes? If you have the Spirit of God within you, then existing inside of you also is a law, and it is a law that leads to intimacy and union with God. It's a law of life. A law of life. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. Say that with me. I have been set free. I have been set free. Amen. So, but Pat, that's not something we're looking to have happen. We're working it out, but we've been set free. The prison door is open and the chains are laying at our feet. They're no longer attached to our bodies. Amen. We are free. Amen. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, what the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh, sending his own son in flesh like ours, under sin's dominion, and as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Now, I know that those words, like I said earlier, often appear in verse 1 in many Bibles, but it doesn't belong there. It does belong here, okay? Now, in the end, it really doesn't matter, but there's a lot of people who are um, that will can twist the Scriptures if they keep it in verse 1, and it doesn't need to be there. 
in order that, he says he did this in order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who, it doesn't say it's just accomplished in you because you're Christ's. He says it's accomplished in you, the law, the righteousness, uh, the righteous requirements of the law are accomplished in you who, or if you, do not walk according to your flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, if you want to read it from the negative side, it says that the righteous requirement of the law cannot and will not be fulfilled in you, even as a Christian, if you continue to walk out of the flesh instead of the Spirit. Hello? Right? I mean, so clearly here, this is a conditional statement. Now, the grace movement, they will take this, this verse here, and they don't read the last part of it. They just read the first part of it. They like the part to talk about there's no, uh, in order to, that the law's requirement might be fulfilled in us. And in fact, I've actually heard them quote it this way, that it might be fulfilled for us. That is not what the Greek says. If it was fulfilled for us, then the rest of the verse makes no sense. Why would I need to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh if all the stuff's already been done for me? No, 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 no. It's going to be done in and through you. But it can't be done in and through you if you're still living according to your flesh. You have to be living according to the law of the spirit of life that's in you. Amen? That's how you have to, you have to live according to the union. How do you do that? Well, we read it every week recently. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. We look forward to, with great joy and anticipation, seeing him face to face. And as long as we maintain that hope and that focus in our heart, our hope fixed upon that, we find ourselves, our, our compass is set due north now. And, we, and we, don't, we don't wander off to the right. We don't wander off to the left. We're not, you know, tracking off in some godforsaken forest someplace. We are right where we need to be. And when we do that, we are in tune with the Holy Spirit of God who is within us as a law creating union with God. Amen. But you can suppress that voice and pay attention to your flesh. How many people know that? Yeah, I know it firsthand, right? Anybody that's been walking in their body for more than a day after they've been born again knows that's true. You can decide to walk after your flesh. And if you do, the righteous requirement, and it is a requirement, by the way. It is a requirement. If you want to get to the redemption of your body, if you want to get to the point of glorification, if you want to be able to anticipate his return with joy rather than great, great sorrow and grief and even fear, then, yeah, you're going to have to do this. Absolutely. Okay? Verse 4, In order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those whose lives are according to the flesh... Think about the things of the flesh. So right there is your litmus test. How much of your day, don't answer me out loud, but how much of your time, how much of your day is dedicated towards thinking about the things of the flesh? If, you, if that is the great majority of your time, you are carnal. The scripture is very clear about that. You're carnal. And I, already pro I can promise you, you're not looking forward to his coming. You, By default, the first thought in that kind of person's mind is, well, you know, I know he's coming back and I'm, and I'm glad he's going to, but I hope it's not today. 
Uh, I, I got some things I'd like to get done. Well, you know, then do them. Right? And the thing that you should want to get done is get that focus changed. Because I got news for you. There's nothing going on on this planet that's worth sticking around for. Amen. When he shows up, I'm willing, I am ready to drop all of it. There's nothing I got that I'm looking forward to so much that it's more important than being reuni reunited with Jesus. I don't care what you got going on. And if you got something going on in your life that you're more excited about than his return, you better fix that. I'm not playing around. I'm being dead serious. You need to fix that. That is an idol. And that is making you carnal. Yes, ma'am. Excuse me. The example that came to me right there was the two that walked together. One's taken and one's left behind. Mm -hmm. That's right. The example that Jesus gave in Matthew. And I believe in Luke. That's right. We, we, so we've got to, this is, and this is, again, you can look at it as a to-do list and dig in and try to do it in the power of your flesh. And of course you will fail. This is not about the action. It's about the union with God that leads to the action, produces the action. Remember in first John chapter three, it made it very clear that if we just fall in love with him and are anticipating with great joy his soon return that the purification kind of takes care of itself. We find ourselves becoming pure because our focus is right. In the same way that the reason why if you are carnal and you have become the carnal thing you are is because your focus was focused on carnal things. If you just shift your focus to him, you'll find yourself becoming pure even as he is. You become like what you focus on, which is what these verses right here say. He says, for those who live lives according to the flesh do so because they think about the things of the, th of the flesh. But those who live lives according to the Spirit think about the things of the Spirit. Well, what, one thing, uh, what, what is one thing that the Spirit thinks about? Life. It was one of the first things we read here, wasn't it? The law of the Spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. Or the Spirit's law of union with God that's found in Christ Jesus is inside of you. Amen? The Bible also tells us, if we were to back up, which we're not going to, but if we were to back up to chapter 5 in Romans, it tells us that the love of God has been shed abroad in our heart by that same Holy Spirit. And that love is a is agape and phileo love for God and for his children. Because you can't claim to love God without loving his kids, and you can't love his kids without loving him. Amen. Right? And, and you don't have to try to muster that up. It's already in you. In fact, the, the, like I've told you before, the Woos translation, and that's Romans 5, uh, verse 5, it's 5-5. Five, five. If you look it up in the Woos translation, it gives you the tenses, and it literally says that the, that the love of God is in our hearts and even still is flooding it by his spirit that dwells within us. You don't have a trinkle. You don't have a dripping faucet. The Bible says that it is even right now, if you're born again, the love of God is flooding your heart. So can you imagine what must be going on if you don't sense that love? Hello? Your focus has got to be so preoccupied with the world that you've shut him out entirely because that love is flooding it, overflowing. Yes. 
I just said, as you were starting that, I thought in my heart, mm-hmm. I, and my heart just went yeah it responds because inside of you the spirit of god agrees with these words amen that's right thank you lord verse six for the mindset of the flesh is death well i really wouldn't even have to read that to you guys know that don't you your flesh is not about union with god i mean death is separation from god the flesh wants separation from god the flesh longs for independence it doesn't want to be told what to do. Isn't that true? I mean, Paul said that it made it very clear that the, the one thing that drives the flesh to want to sin is the fact that the law said, don't do it. Amen. Right? When the law says, don't do it, he says, immediately bows up on the inside of your flesh a desire to do the very thing you're told not to do. Your flesh is not looking for union with God. One day it will. But that's not today. Right? The flesh, the for the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit, and this means your reborn human spirit, because all this is talking about you. We're not, we're not, we're not talking about the need of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't have any need, right? Holy Spirit, we don't have to write. Romans eight was not written to the Holy Spirit to tell him he needs to change his focus, right? This is talking about Mark. Mark needs to change his focus, right? So here, it's talking about my flesh, and here it's talking about my spirit, right? Yes. Now, it, now, the reason why my spirit, the mindset of my spirit is life and peace, is because of the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it is still my spirit, right? Yes. Paul makes it very clear in Galatians that your spirit is on one end and your flesh is on the other. It says that, you're, uh, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary to one another. So if the flesh is for death, then guess what your spirit is for? Life. Amen? So I mean, so this is talking about the reborn human spirit. For the, fl- mind of the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life. And the reason why I, I particularly drew attention to the fact that's our spirit is because <clears throat> there are no clues in the Greek that tells you what spirit it's referring to. The, 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 the translator uses the context and their understanding of it to put a capital S or a small s. And in many translations, they put a capital S here. But it's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Are you following? I mean, this would be a true statement about the Holy Spirit, but Paul's not writing to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I mean, that's common sense. He's talking about you, right? So he says here, for the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of your reborn human spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. You could, it, 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 to be perfectly honest, it would almost make more sense to reverse those words. Peace and life. Because life is union with God. Peace is agreement with Him. Which leads to life. Right? If you, just, if you walk in disagreement towards God, you are not going to enjoy life, union. You can't have koinonia with someone you walk in disagreement with. We know that. We've spent a lot of time in this church talking about koinonia, haven't we? You know better than that. Two can't walk together unless they're agreed, right? Well, you know, so in so really, peace and life would be a way to say it. Um, that uh, that uh, that the, the mindset of the spirit of the reborn human spirit is to agree with God and to walk in union with Him. Amen. Verse seven: For the mindset of the flesh is violently hostile against God because it does not submit itself to God's law. For in fact, it is unable to do so. 
those whose lives are regulated by the flesh are unable, incapable of pleasing God. I will not be that person. I will not be that person. I'll please him. I, let me tell you a little clue here. He's telling you right here. Again, you can learn as much by reading the opposite as you can reading it the way it's written. It says here that those who are in the flesh or live lives according to the flesh cannot please God. And we know one of the attributes of, or one of the things that leads towards pleasing God is trust, don't we? Without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please him. So what does this inadvertently tell you? If you're having a hard time trusting, you're walking pretty carnal. I don't even I don't even know why to read this. I mean, it seems pretty clear to me because you can't you can't have you can't be walking the flesh and please God, and that means I can't be walking the flesh and have true faith towards God, because faith would please Him, but walking the flesh doesn't please Him. So I can't be pleasing and unpleasing at the same time. I'm either pleasing or I'm not, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Now, now again, let me just to throw you a lifeline. There's a difference between pleasing and accepted. You are accepted in the beloved, even when he is not pleased with you. Are you following? This is no different than, and you know this from natural, 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 natural stuff, don't you? In your own life, do you not have people in your life that they are accepted? You wouldn't reject them. You'd sooner cut your hand off than reject them, but you're not always pleased with them. Right? There is, yeah, if you are in Christ, there isn't a condemnation to you. Amen. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm not, but just because I'm in the beloved doesn't make me pleasing. Right? I have a whole article on that on the church website. You might want to look it up. It's about, I don't remember what I worded it, but you know, it's probably acceptable and pleasing or whatever. But uh, those words are in it. But there's a difference between the two. And again, that's something that the grace movement muddies the water. I mean, they talk about that, you know, that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life or what you're doing. You are well-pleasing to God. I'm like, that is not what my Bible says. And you don't have to please. I'm begging you on this one. Don't take my word for it. Start looking up the word well-pleasing or the word pleasing throughout your Bible. And you will find it is always attached to what you do, not to whose you are. Accepted is always attached to your union with Christ. It's got nothing to do with what you've done. Pleasing is always attached to your actions. Every last time. There's not a time where it's not. So the lifeline is that you're accepted. Even if you happen to be right now finding yourself as I'm reading this thinking, you're thinking, whoa, it uh, sounds like I'm pretty carnal. Well, you know, at least you know you're accepted. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And you can change the pleasing part, can't you? All you gotta do is just change your focus. Amen. So none of this is hard. Yes. Uh -huh. Quick statement here. I'd like to do. It says regarding Christ's love. It says His love is unencumbered by adequacy standards. And yeah. It liberates a person to do his or her best with joy and creative motivation. That's right. We're not we're not striving to get accepted. Amen. We're not motivated to do what we do so we can be accepted. We do what we do because we're overraptured with joy because we've been accepted. Amen. And you know, if you just keep that mindset in your heart, you again, you'll find yourself purifying yourself. 
It's when we lose sight of it and allow the world to speak louder than our own spirit that we lose sight of these things and we begin to live carnal again. And there's not a Christian on this planet that hasn't experienced it. There's not a Christian in this planet that's exempt from it. None of us. I don't care that the most spiritual person on this planet could get wrapped up in carnal things. It's harder for them. They have to be more deliberate about it. Because the fact that they're truly, truly, truly spiritual and have been walking with the Lord for a long time, then the flesh is far less appealing than it used to be. They'd have to make a pretty hardcore decision to start walking that way, but it's possible. Are you following? <clears throat> so, verse 7. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. Those, verse 8, those whose lives are in the flesh are unable to please God. You, however, I love that Paul is always drawing the Corinthians out, even though he knows that these people are carnal. He said so earlier in this exact same, um, oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, this is in Romans, I apologize. He's not, this, I, forgive me, but so the Roman believers, he's drawing this out too. Forgive me, I, I was... Uh, my mind is already in 1 Corinthians 15, so I'm thinking that way, so forgive me for that. Um, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this one does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, you need to understand that sentence. He's not saying, obviously, that you're physically dead. You're still walking around, Right? But he is saying that if Christ is in you, the power and the jurisdiction that your body used to have on you, it's lost. It does not have the right or the power to make you sin. If you sin, you sin with a free will. Right? Before you got born again, it was the only option you had. You could sin in a way that looked better to other people, but you're going to sin. Even if you did something right, you did it with the nefarious motives. Sin is all that's in the heart of an unbeliever. It's all they can do, right? Even I was I was just listening to the other day. We've been watching a lot um, uh, in here. My mom watches some programs in the evening, and uh, we've been watching a lot of the older ones, which, by the way, are a million times better. Um, ones I remember seeing when I was a kid or something I'd heard about when I was a kid. Um, uh, and I forget which one it was, uh, but... Uh, Oh, I remember the the one with the singer and the little boy. Um, he's an entertainer. We just saw it last night. I forget his name. No, 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 no. He's a man. Um, oh shoot. Ma Might be. I don't remember. Anyway, he's an entertainer, and he's got, he um, and he's got a little boy, and he's got a little bit older um, daughter, and uh, it's just a, it's a, just a fun old show. But the Danny Thomas show, okay. And uh, uh, I'd never even heard of it until recently. But it's all, it's, it's back in black and white. And uh, uh, the, uh, but he was trying to teach his little boy to do something right. He'd found some uh, man's wallet. And uh, he was telling him that he needed to return it. And the mother was telling him, you know, you know, if you turn it, give it to the man, he's probably going to give you a reward. So the boy was all looking forward to the reward. And the father's like, you know, well, you know, we don't do it for that. We don't want to, we don't want to do it for the wrong reason. You know, uh, you know, we return it and, you know, he's probably going to give you a reward, but if he doesn't, it's okay because we're not doing it for the reward. And the, the wife has always kept on building up that, well, you're going to get a reward. You know, you're going to get a reward. And so the boy's all excited about the reward and the dad's trying to get her to shut up because 
It's not, a, I want my son to start doing the right thing for the right reason, not to do it so he can get a reward. Because in the wallet was 10 bucks, right? Which back then, that was a sizable amount of money. And uh, <clears throat> so, and the boy's thinking, heck, you know, maybe I'll get 20 bucks for returning a wallet that's got 10 bucks in it. You know, so he's, you know, he's getting it built up for the wrong reason. And I'm beginning to like this show. It's communicating a good moral. And then when he gets there and he returns the wallet, the man doesn't give him a dime and he walks away and the boy's all downcast. Then the, the father tries to tell the son, well, you know, we don't do it for that. We do it for the good feeling it gives us. Oh, then it just fell off the apple cart. See, it's all about me. Even about that. See, it's not, I'm not doing it because it's the right thing and it honors God. I'm doing it because it makes me feel good on the inside. It's still about me. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So the, the world doesn't have a way of doing it just for the purity of the fact that it is the right thing. And I want to honor God from who I am. It's not in them. What they do, they're going to do on some level or another for themselves. Now, they might tell you they're doing it for all these lofty reasons, but on the inside, and in my mind, I always think about that dumb thing where all those entertainers got together and did that, that um, we are the world thing to get money and stuff like that. But when you, when you follow their careers after that and the things they said about it, they were all doing it because of the good feeling it gave them and because of the fact that the truth of the matter is it was a promotional thing that got their name out there. No one really, I mean, if all the artists had an opportunity to do something that helped the children and, and helped the world and certain guys just said, I don't want to be part of that, and you know that's going to look bad on their on their repertoire. People aren't going to be booking them as much for concerts and stuff like that. So they had they had cash on the barrelhead reasons to show up that day. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Now everybody thought, oh, isn't that isn't that sweet? Look at that. They just love the children. Well, I'm not saying they don't like kids, but that's not the pure reason why they're doing what they're doing. They're motivated by money and they're motivated by fame. If nothing else, they're motivated by that nice, warm feeling it gives you. But they're not motivated to do it to honor Christ. And that's the only pure motive there is. Is everybody with me? So <clears throat> it says, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Sin is still in the body. It's still there. Sin and death are in the body. Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin, but Jesus' work in you has also rendered it inoperative. It cannot make you, force you to live ungodly lives. But the Spirit is alive because of right standing with God. Verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, what's he getting at? Before he says the next words, what he's getting at is that the power of the Spirit of God that's in you is greater than the power of your flesh. It's greater than. Greater than. If it can raise dead, necrotic flesh to life, it can certainly overcome its influence and cause you to walk godly. Amen? Now, if, the, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your immortal bodies to life through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, that particularly is talking about the rapture. It's talking about the redemption of our body at the end of this age. And we'll see that in a minute. So then, and so I, I want you to see that this is an, 
without even saying it, I told you that that out of the 260 chapters in the Bible, over 300 times the rapture or the return of the Lord of some way or another is mentioned. This is not even, this isn't one that I'm counting among it. And yet it's directly talking about the resurrection of the body, which is the, at the rapture. It's talking about the return of the Lord, though it doesn't use the words. So it, it, can you imagine that if we were to include how many times he has an indirect reference to the return of the Lord, how many references there would be? If direct references are over 300, indirect references might equal up to five and 600 or more, right? So it's a big, big deal. So he says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your immortal bodies to life again through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you, what did he just call them? Brothers. He's not talking to Jewish people, meaning, in other words, he's not referring to them as brothers according to the flesh. He's talking about people who are brothers according to the Spirit. These are born-again people. You can tell that by all the language he's been using up to this point. Right? These are born-again children of God. And so he says here, he says, but if you, even as a child of God, live a life dedicated to the flesh, you are going to die. Period. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those habitually led by the Spirit of God, these are God's mature children. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I, I, I found that just happening this morning without even trying to. And I don't remember this verse was going to be in there. Just worshiping the Lord this morning. I just kept on, just for a little while there, the Spirit just kept on drawing the words, Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Papa, out of my heart. That was the Holy Spirit. He does that, right? He's the one that does that. The Spirit himself does that. The Spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Papa, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him so that we may be glorified together with him. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time, what did I tell you that we were living in right now? This is the age of suffering, isn't it? The age of grace. Because the age corresponds to the arrival. Jesus' arrival was arrival of suffering and death. So the age is an age of suffering and death. When he returns, will be an arrival of glory, and that will be an age of glory for the church. Amen? Amen. So he says here, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be put as a side-by-side -side comparison with the glory that we're going to receive. The sufferings are like an atom, and the glory is like the universe. You really can't compare the two, right? You can't compare the two. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be mentioned against the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For... The creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's mature sons to make their debut. 
There, you realize that the elements of the world, the rocks, the animals, are waiting for the body of Christ to grow up. They're waiting for us to become the mature sons and daughters of God. Because as soon as that happens, their redemption draws nigh. Right? Theirs does. You realize that the world fell because of mankind. They fell under the sway of sin and death. Everything dies now. It didn't before. Now it does because it was placed underneath our rule. So when we fell, they fell. Right? We're going to read that in a second here. So what's going to happen when we rise? It will rise too. Right? They're waiting for us. Amen? If you really want to be a, a, an animal activist, get on board with growing up spiritually. You want animals to not suffer anymore? Grow up spiritually. Because that day's coming, right? The earth will no longer be uh, experiencing all the things it experiences. Right now, it's going through a lot of, of uh, what, the, what Paul in a minute here calls birth pangs, right? But that day's coming to an end. So he says, for the creation eagerly waits for with anticipation for the revealing of God's mature children. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The creation didn't make the decision to do that but because of God who subjected it to man in hope. It, it fell because of us, right? Not because of a decision that the world made. Animals didn't revolt, right? The, the planet didn't revolt. It was underneath us. We revolted, and it fell with us. It says verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. All of creation will be. All of creation will be set free free from the bondage of corruption and death. And that's tethered to you and I growing up. He says, for, the, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with, with pains until this very moment. And not only they, but you and I, who have ourselves, have the Spirit as the first fruits of our redemption. We also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption that is the redemption of our bodies. How are we waiting for it? Eagerly, it says, with anticipation. See, this is something that is lacking in the body of Christ. We're not eagerly anticipating much of anything other than maybe Super Bowl Sunday or the raise I might get next week or this vacation coming up. We eagerly anticipate things in the flesh. But as far as things in the Spirit, we're not eagerly anticipating stuff like that. That is a serious problem. It is idolatry. Hello? Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong to look forward to a trip. No, it's not wrong to look forward to it. But if that, but if when you think about the word anticipation, the first things that pop into your mind are carnal, I'm saying, yeah, that's a problem. Yes, that's a problem. The first thing that should pop in a Christian's mind when it comes to do with anticipation on most days should be the return of the Lord and the redemption of their bodies. That day's coming. Amen? We should look forward to that more than anything else in, the entire, in our entire um, uh, uh, lives, that are coming lives. He says, verse, uh, um, verse 24, Now this, in this hope we are saved, yet hope that is currently seen is not hope. Because why does someone hope for something that he already has? But if we 
hope for what we do not yet see, then we're placed in a position of eager anticipation and patience in waiting for it. Right? We're looking forward to something that we don't yet have. The return of the Lord and being forever with him physically, not having the, the flesh veil and obscure our view of him anymore, but seeing with crystal clarity from this day forward, and we're looking forward to having a body that does not obscure our view that joins with us in our praise and our glory of God. Yeah, I love, I'm reminded of what um, Chan, uh, Brother Chan said in the video that we started the year off with. Uh, you know, and I, and I, I had the thought myself, but I love the way he said it. It can't really be improved upon, I don't think. But, you know, I was thinking about, you know, uh, just in the, one of the last songs we were singing, where it says, all the angels crying holy. And I'm thinking, you know, some of these angels have been doing that for thousands of years. And I'm thinking, aren't they getting tired of it? No. And the truth of the matter is, no, of course they're not. I mean, we know that. But, you know, when we try to put ourselves in their position and think about doing anything for that duration of time, it's hard to contemplate doing something like that without thinking, wow, uh, is there something else we could do for a little while? It's human. Hello? Of course it is. And don't tell me it doesn't, you don't think that way because, you know, you, you focus on something longer than 15 minutes, you guys, your minds are already wandering, right? Try being focused on something for a thousand years, right? And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, it's not because they don't have some type of a free will because they could choose not to. Lucifer did, right? And you and I also know that consequences are not a good deterrent to sin. How many of you know that if you sin, you're going to feel horrible about it later. And you might even suffer with guilt and suffer with condemnation for hours, maybe even days afterwards. How many people have know that? Has that ever stopped you from sinning? No. Consequences are a lousy deterrent to sin. So it's not that these angels are deciding, I better keep doing this because I know how it turned out for Lucifer. Because that's a lousy deterrent. So the only answer is something about God is so amazing, so overwhelming that it draws it out of them and it's not a work, it's a response. That is what my flesh is veiling me from seeing. Amen? Are you seeing that? On that day, I'm not going to have that veil anymore. I'm going to see him for what he really is, for who he really is. And that's going to be a game changer. I've got the privilege now to respond to him in this present distress as if I was on the other side of the veil. That is honoring him. When the Bible say, in, in, in Peter, I think it is, it says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. And you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, waiting for the re uh, waiting for um, uh, talking about his revealing for the salvation of your soul, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Right? 
Obviously, these angels see something I don't see. I see a little bit of it, and the little bit I do see draws worship out of my heart. I cannot even imagine what it's going to be like when I actually see him. On the moments here on earth, when I see him the most clear, which is still really muddy waters, it draws worship out of me to the point where I feel like my soul is just going to explode. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when I see him. Amen? So, you know, keeping that in our hearts and our minds, realizing that, you know, we don't have the first clue at this point what we're looking forward to. He says, now, in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because why do you hope for something you already see? But if we hope for what we do not yet see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also joins together. Koinonia is with us to help us in the middle of our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, nor how to offer it in a worthy manner as we must. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings, or groanings that we cannot speak intelligibly. In other words, he's speaking about speaking in tongues as we pray in the Spirit, right? And that, that happens a lot with me. When I get into worship and I just I run out of words because words just can't capture what my heart is wanting to express, I find myself just praying in the Spirit, just speaking in tongues. Not because I'm trying to do it. It just, it's, I have something in my heart has got to communicate and I don't have words for it. But the Spirit knows how. Amen. He's got a word for that. <laughs> and my mind doesn't know what it is, but he does. And so, and, and, and what does the Bible say? Our, our, our mind is, is, is unprofited. We don't know what we're saying. But our spirit is edified. Amen. Thank you, God. He ties home together with me in the middle of my weakness. Yes. Verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Again, another wildly misquoted verse. Just heard it misquoted just this past week. Misapplied. Uh, uh, dear brother in the Lord, I love very much. Um, but he said, you know, uh, I'm just reminded of that verse that talks about when he's talking about what's going on politically. He said, I'm just reminded of that verse that we're promised that all things work together for our good. And I was just kind of sensing in my spirit, Lord, do I say something or not? And I didn't feel like I was supposed to say something. Well, I had no problem. I would have no problem saying. And he, he's the kind of person that would have received it, but it just obviously wasn't the moment. But the verse doesn't say all things work together for our good, period. The period's not there. It says for those who love God and for those who are the called according to his good purpose. The wording there means, and I've told you this before, but I'll tell it to you again because I know sometimes I'll say something that I've said a hundred times and I'll say it the next time and then I get looks on faces like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And I've said it a million times. So I'm going to say it again. <laughs> you know, the wording here means those who are dedicated to complete the call that he's placed upon you. Not just those who love him, but those who are the called, who are, who have said yes to the call of pursuing his good purpose. For those people, everything works out together for good. Do you know how many people in the body of Christ right now that eliminates? Most. Probably a good portion, at least, again, in first world countries. Probably not very many in third world countries. Probably doesn't eliminate very many, if any of them. But for many of us, yeah. 
He says, all things work together for the good of those who passionately love God and are devoted with a resounding yes to the call that he's placed upon them. His purposes, his plans. The first purpose and plan he has for every child of God is purity. How dedicated are you to that? If you're not that dedicated to that, then don't think this verse applies to you because it don't. Hello? You know, I mean, for some, you know, I mean, these are, so many of these things are answers to things we used to wonder back in the Word of Faith movement. Why isn't this working for me? Well, I've done all the right things. I've, I've, I've worn a, a hole in my carpet, pasted with my 3 by 5 garden. I've made a confession for, for, you know, now I'm going on 72 hours and nothing's changed. What's up? I thought all things worked together. Well, the answer's right there in the same verse. The period wasn't there, right? The pacing the floor wasn't about loving God. It was about getting something from him, right? And then, does that mean that you didn't love God? I'm not saying you didn't love God. I'm not saying I didn't love God. I'm just saying my focus wasn't on love. It was on getting something from him, right? My faith was for, not in. And so, you know, so no wonder it didn't work. No wonder our faith was frustrated, Right? But if we go back, we read what he actually says. It's a literally a love feast. And as we fall in love with him, right? We find all these things just working. Where did we hear that? Who told us that? Jesus. You know what? All the prophets and everything the law ever said would be fulfilled in you if you just fall in love with God. Didn't Jesus say that? You guys, you're all worried about keeping the law and, you know, and, and making sure you walk, you know, so many steps on the Sabbath. You don't go beyond that and you only do this and you don't do that. And you've got the do, to do and a to don't do list that's just miles long. And you're just chasing your own tail trying to make sure you can check them all off. And I'm just telling you, if you just fall in love, you could throw your list away. Jesus. You could throw your list away. You don't need that list. Because from the inside, you'd be steered towards righteousness. Because you love him. Amen? So verse 29, for, thee, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. Do you think it's any mistake that, he that that's the very next thing he said out of his mouth after that verse? He says, all things work together for good for, those of, for, the, for the good of those who love God to those who are dedicated with a resounding yes. I'm reading to you what the Greek actually communicates. With a resounding yes answer to his purpose and call on your life. It's for this, for this, for those he foreknew, these he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. That is the, that's what you're responding to the, the, res, the resounding yes I'm giving to his purpose. His purpose that you're conformed to his image, right? That's why the next verse started with the word for. It tethers right into the, all that he was just saying. If you're de dedicated with a resounding, yes, Lord, I'm dedicated to Christ being formed in me, and I adore you, then yeah, all things are working together for me because I'm working together with him. Right? For those who are for, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would just be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, these he also invited. And those he invited, these he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What are we to say the, about these things then? If God is for us, who could be against us? Right? I mean, this is building to a crescendo, isn't it? 
I mean, Paul's getting excited here. You can tell it in the tone of his writing. He's, he's, he's preached himself happy, right? He started talking about these things and talking about these things. And I can see him barely being able to hold on to his pen because he's ready to dance a jig because he's like, if God's for us, who could be against us? This whole thing is so slanted in our favor. It's unbelievable, right? Who could bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Someone could bring an accusation against you, but who cares? The judge has already slammed the gavel and he says, you're justified. So who cares if they levy an accusation against you? What difference does it make, right? Paul said, it means very little to me that I'm judged by man's judgment. I've got one who judged me, and that's God. I've been judged in Christ, right? The gavel's already been slammed, and I've been declared just in his sight. Amen? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, has been raised. He is at the right hand of God and intercedes for you and I. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or naked or danger or sword? The answer is no. None of those things can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. The only thing that can separate us is ourselves. You notice all the things he's talking about here. He says, what can separate you? The two people in the room is God and me. And the question is hanging in the room, what could separate us from the outside coming in? The answer is nothing. Nothing could come in and drive a wedge between he and I. Nothing on the outside could do that. The only thing that could do that is either him or me. And he ain't doing it, but I could. That's where all the warnings in the New Testament come from, right? Severe warnings in the New Testament, all through the New Testament, right? But on the outside, nothing could do this. Nothing, right? He says, but as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. That's part of the suffering. He says, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But no, in all of these things, we are still more than victors more than conquerors, through him who loved us. He's not saying that you're not going to be going through this stuff. He says that when you go through it, you're the one that gains the victory. Even those who are martyred for Christ gain the victory. Amen? Like the two that we were watching the video. Kind of kiddingly said, you know, the guy comes up and says, I'm going to kill you. And you're like, okay. Are you okay with this? Well, I'm not going to kill you. Okay. Well, what are you going to do with a person like that? It doesn't matter. To live is Christ, to die is gain. It doesn't, to me, either one's okay. If I continue to live on, then I get to glorify Christ another day. If you kill me, I get to be in Christ's presence, which is far better. Either one's okay. It's okay. Amen? Where is my focus? Right? He says, <clears throat> verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, uh, go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're only going to read a couple of verses before we end. And then we're, because I said we're going to get to 15, we're going to, but we won't go far. Now, flip uh, for, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So we can begin to see 
Paul's encouragement regarding Jesus' return and the fact that it will be at that return, at his returns, that our bodies are glorified. That's why we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15. But can you see that was already in Romans 8? Didn't we just see that? We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies he's talking about, yeah? Now, now we need to give proper weight to Paul's beginning words as he starts to talk about this topic. So that's really what we're going to pay attention to before closing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify. Stop right there. So you already know what, what he's doing now. If, if you back up in the whole letter, he's dressed a whole bunch of stuff all the way up to now. <clears throat> but he's clearly changing his topic. He's moving on to a new topic. And the topic he's about to start talking about is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and therefore you are going to raise from the dead because he's rose from the dead, and begin to talk about the redemption of our body. That's the topic he's about to talk about. But these people already knew about that. So what he's doing in talking about it is clarifying what they already knew. Are you following? Okay. I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. Now, as you keep on reading, as we keep on reading now and next week, you're going to find that Jesus is calling the message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the current suffering of the Christian through the resurrection of their body when Jesus is returned. That is the gospel. The gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Mark. That's the gospel. Hello? And you can't eliminate any part of that and have the gospel. It fails to be the gospel then. Okay? So, and the, re the reason why he's wanting to clarify these things, I'll tell you in a minute, but let's just go ahead and read this. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand upon it. You were also saved by it. If you hold on to the message, if, it's conditional. You're saved by it if. You're saved by it if you hold on to the message I proclaimed to you unless you believed for no purpose at all. Man, there's a lot in here. This is the kind of thing that is easy to read past and you want to read past it. I oughtn't to read past it. Notice Paul says that this topic of the resurrection of Christ, his return, and our, our physical resurrection is a clarification of the gospel itself. He doesn't say this is an important side topic. You should know something about it. No. He places this on equal footing with all other aspects of the gospel, and I think you will begin to understand why as we read the next verses. He also says that understanding of and continued belief in it is your salvation. Listen to that. He says understanding of it and continued belief in it is your salvation. Don't let go of it. And now, it doesn't say this a lot in the Bible, but the New Testament, it does mention it several times, probably enough that if I, if I say the statement, it'll trigger a memory of a verse in your mind where the Bible talks about it says that, um, that, 
though that they will be saved who hold on steadfast to the end. Anybody remember verses that trigger in your head that something like that? Okay. Evidently, this is not a one statement I made way back when, and I go on live the way I want to live because it's once saved, always saved. Now, it doesn't say that. He said, if you stay steadfast to your belief and confession, steadfast to the very end, these will be saved. I mean, that, I mean, that again, this is just so incredibly significant and is something that is literally taught against in churches. We can't afford that, guys. We won't do that here, right? And I'm not saying it to put a heavy weight because it's not a heavy weight. If we're in love with him, you're going to continue to believe to the end anyway. This isn't hard. Again, everything's met if you just fall in love. All of it's taken care of. You don't have to worry about the to-do list on that point, on that level. Now, now, many in the body, and like I said, would immediately disagree, claiming that salvation is only in the person and work of Jesus alone, and it is, in fact, only to be found there. And, and it is, on some level. Salvation wouldn't be available except for the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, right? But it, and its effect upon us is directly related to how and if it's responded to. This is where we have to accept what Scripture teaches, regardless of how it may upset our current understanding of it. Paul is communicating under influence of the Holy Spirit, that, and he's clearly and unambiguously stating that adherence to and continued belief in these doctrinal points are the basis upon which you are and continue to be saved. We also see another point to this address at the very end of this chapter, which we're not going to get to today, but I'm going to read it to you. At the end of everything that he says, he concludes with this: these words. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not to no purpose. Well, what did he just end saying in verse 2? He said, You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless when you believed, you believed to no purpose. What's he saying there? He's saying people can believe to no purpose, in which case they're really not saved. They believed to no purpose. Well, what was the purpose? The purpose is what he ends the chapter with. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast. Fixed, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. That's the purpose. Not say these magic words and go live your life the way you want to live, and in the end you get to go to heaven. Doesn't say that. He says, fixed and immovable, always excelling, growing, becoming more determined in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Therefore, you did not believe in vain, right? It's going to produce the desired end. Now, because of time, we're going to go ahead and close. There's, there's a little bit more I would have loved to have covered in just verse 3 through 11, but it, it would take longer, and I just don't, I don't want to overgo our time. So um, we'll end there. That's kind of like a bait for where we're heading. But just know that so far in chapter 5, he's telling them, I'm going to about to talk to you about the fact of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's going to, it's interesting to me, and I'll probably say this next week too, that um, that we have here in this chapter more proofs of the resur resurrection than we have anywhere in the Bible. Which surprises you because you'd think if anywhere they would show up in the Gospels. And they don't. 
Uh, there are a couple of little proofs that show up in the gospel, but not like this. He gives a list of proofs. Okay? And the reason why is because he's trying to press upon them the importance of realizing that Jesus literally rose from the dead and that you will literally raise from the dead. And if you don't believe this, you're believing another gospel. Okay? So we'll end with those, with those words. Great. Grace. Grace. Grace.